Hi, and a welcome to the Entrepreneur Organization Business Podcast. I am your host, Lynn Padetti. My guest today is Sean Williams from EO Adelaide, who has joined me on the show to share her remarkable journey of starting her business with zero leadership experience. Now, Sean began her career in the disability sector in 2012 and took the leap to found Here to Home in mid-2019. Now, what started as a small venture has now evolved into a team of 40, offering face-to-face services in South Australia and Queensland, as well as providing remote services nationwide. In this episode, you will discover how Shan's relentless dedication in the early days of her business nearly caused her to burn out and how she transformed herself into an effective leader, leading her company to the impressive size it is today. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Shan. Welcome to the show, Shan. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Lynn, for having me. Well, it's so great to have met you in person in Adelaide as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you showed me around and I got to get to know you in person. But yeah, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. So let's get started by sharing a little bit about yourself and you know your business and what it does. So I've been doing my business for nearly four years now. So I started sort of halfway through towards the end of 2019 and I used to work in state government and there was a bit of maybe four-week period from when I took my separation package with government to starting the business. So it was a pretty, didn't put a lot of thought into it. People had sort of suggested that maybe I privatise what I was doing in government and that's exactly what I did. So started for four years working with people on the NDIS, so disability, working with a lot of different disability types, mental health, and basically we provide a couple of different services for people that are on NDIS support coordination and specialist support coordination. And really that's still all we do. The, the sort of vision for that was to do it really, really well. And that's why we haven't diversified or provide any other services. So, yeah, that's us. Yeah. Well, for those who don't really know what NDIS is, do you mm-hmm. want to kind of explain what it is and how you fit in that equation? Because I have been hearing that a lot and I kind of yeah. am new to how it all works. Yeah, so back state government days when I used to work at Disability SA, everything was sort of block funded. So if you had a disability, then we were our, you know, a one-stop shop kind of thing where if if you needed support or services, you would kind of come to us and everything was kind of worked out for you. We had case managers who would support people to, you know, get the support that they needed. NDIS was brought about with the idea that it would put some choice and control for, for the client essentially so it's a federal funded scheme and it's an insurance scheme so NDIS stands for National Disability Insurance Scheme and we fit into that where we are providing a service that's a little bit like that case management service so we're supporting people when they get their funding for the supports and the services that they need our support coordinators would be linking them into those services and supporting them to you know achieve the goal that they've they've set out for the for that year Okay. So it means that I have to have a disability to be able to access the program. And then I utilize you guys to help me get the the facilities or things that I need. Yeah, pretty much. So um, there's obviously some criteria around that needs to be a permanent lifelong disability, and it needs to impact your day-to-day living in some way to, Mm. to get that support and service and yeah that's essentially what we do so not everybody has support coordination but a lot of people do get that because it's a pretty complex system to navigate a lot of people 
don't understand NDIS when they're starting or they don't even know, you know, how would they connect to an OT or how would they get support workers involved. So that's essentially what we do is we help them work that all out. Yeah. So does the government pay you on your be- um, on their behalf to to help them or does the client pay you? Is that, are the clients your clients? Yeah. So the government puts that funding into their NDIS package for us, for our service. So they can go wherever and that, that was sort of the idea of the whole NDIS is that people would have the choice. So there's many, many different support coordination companies out there that they can choose from and essentially when they get their plan, that would probably be the first service that they would connect to. Usually there's someone involved that can help them with that. So, for example, if they were in hospital, it would be a hospital social worker that would say you need to get a support coordinator We work with some different companies. Here are some choices. Who would you like to go with? And then, you know, if they chose us, then we would sort of help them with all the other services that they get funded for. But, yeah, the funding is essentially all funded through the federal government. Okay. Thank you for the in-depth background. (laughs) So let's talk about the business side of things. So you were working in the government and then you started on your own. Like what was it like in the first year? And, you know, in this topic, we are deep diving into you going, hey, I don't have leadership skill and how do I (laughs) navigate with that? So tell me more. So my motto in life has always been, if an opportunity presents itself, just say yes and worry about it later. So starting my business is a prime example of that. It's exactly what happened. I had been working in state government for quite a number of years, pretty much since I think 2012 I started. And I had a, my third child during that time as well. So I had time off and I was only part-time. So kind of, you know, not really been in it for that long, really. Uh, but because the NDIS were rolling out, there were a lot of opportunities to move around into different units and do different positions and promotional opportunities as well that I probably wouldn't have had if that hadn't all happened. So just going back to that motto, when I was offered opportunities for promotional positions, I would just take it and, you know, stress about that when I was actually in it. So I did a lot of rapid learning. I had to learn different roles really, really quickly. And I was also aware that I didn't want to ask people too many questions all the time. So, you know, just coming up with different ideas of how I can figure out problems on my own was a big part of that. So when I started here to home, it was a very, like I said, you know, it's quite a short period of time in between and didn't really think it through too much. Otherwise I thought I probably won't do it. Here to home essentially started by me just reaching out to one of the contacts that I had in the hospital setting and saying, Hey, this is what I'm doing. You know, if you have any patients that require support here to help. And that's kind of how it started, but I hadn't had any leadership opportunities in any of those previous roles. And my vision for here to home wasn't necessarily to become, you know, the company that it is today. It essentially was me starting out as a private practitioner, not really knowing where that was going to take me. Even when I walked into my accountant, I said, I don't think I need to really register for GST. I might only be doing this for a short period of time. And, you know, even just within that first 12 months, it became apparent that, you know, it was it was growing and it was growing pretty quick. So, yeah, it was it wasn't something that I guess I had the vision for from the beginning. It's something that's developed over time. 
Yeah. So what, what, why do you think you were thinking that way? Like thinking, look, it's just this side thing and I'm not really serious. Like, have you had any thoughts about the way you approached uh, the business at that time? I was, I was sort of put into a uh, position where I had to make a decision with my current job in government where I would either go into a, another department or take the voluntary separation package. So I knew that was pretty clear to me which option I was going to take. I felt like I could get another job somewhere else. It wasn't going to be too hard. So that was a no-brainer. But the actual starting of the business, I guess, I think it's evolved as as the business has evolved. So my vision for it has just changed as the business changed. Initially, when it started, I'd just gone through a separation. So there was a lot of, I guess, pressure on myself to be able to provide for children. And also just, it kept me really busy. It was a great distraction. You know, obviously that was quite a stressful time in my life, but it was a really good distraction. And so I'm someone that loves to learn new things. And it just, I guess it just kind of snowballed. And now I have have a vision for the company, which is great. But in the early stages, there really wasn't anything that I sort of could foresee much other than the initial moment that I was in. I was really just working in that set period. Yeah, I can just imagine. I guess it's your first time starting a business. You don't really know what the 10 steps are ahead. And plus the situation just happened and you just took on. And bravo to you to starting a business while you're separated and trying Mm -hmm. to deal with your personal life. Like, you know, what are some of the steps you took? I mean, someone could be listening right now and they're going through some personal issues, you know, and, you know, it, it might be affecting the business. It might be affecting their mental health. Like would love to hear some of your steps that you took or the things that you said to yourself to really get through those tough times. That's tricky. So the first year I really was very career focused and I spent a, an extreme amount of time working And if I wasn't working, I was with my kids and doing things for my kids. So didn't have much of a social life. It was a lot of hard work. And I think that that's what really propelled the business into what it is now because I worked so hard. But it was also a coping strategy. It was a distraction. It kept me really distracted. And so I don't know whether that's necessarily a great thing or not. It's paid off, but it did result in the end after about, I would say about about a year, then I started to really kind of burn out because, you know, anyone starting a new business, you're wearing all the hats, I was doing everything. Um, so it that's when things started to get pretty stressful and I think kind of caught up with me a little bit. I think probably some of the things that I've done that have been helpful is that self-awareness. So realising when I am starting to feel really overwhelmed and taking time out for me and what does that look like and I think you know as a mum we get a lot of mum guilt when you're doing things for yourself but I've had to really sort of retrain my brain into realizing that that's actually really important to do things for myself because I show up much better as a mum when Mm. I've spent time on myself whatever that might be and for everyone it's different you know some people might want to have a massage and you know, I know for me, it's catching up with my close friends and my friends have probably been one of the most important factors, if not the most important factor in what got me through it all. I've really supportive friends and 
just connecting with them and spending some time with them to debrief is probably for me personally what helped a great deal through all of that. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I can so relate because I was a single mum as well, but I really had to rely on friends. So looking back there, did, do you have any regrets in the way you approached it or you thought, you know what, it, it was exactly how it's meant to be? I think that I don't really have regrets. I'm very conscious about not living with regrets and I think that's why I take opportunities when they come up because I never want to look back when I'm 80, 90 years old and think, oh, what if I'd done that? You know, I regret not trying that out. So I try really hard to live my life by by that, you know, method and just taking opportunities when they come. So I don't necessarily regret anything. I think that there were times that I was working so hard that, you know, the balance wasn't there. But at the same time, then I probably wouldn't be where I am today with the company if I hadn't put that really, really hard work in at the start. So I wouldn't say it's a regret. I think I probably would have just maybe taken a little bit more time out to give back to myself so that I didn't get to that point of like nearly, you know, burning Mm. out after that year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about the leadership side of things. So obviously you had to hire people and that's when you realise that, hey, I've got some gap here. So tell me more about your first hire and where did you realise that, hey, I need help in this area? The gap was huge, Lynn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was massive because I'd had no leadership skills at all. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you have something inside of you that you you bring to the table as it is. I remember and my, my longest girlfriend still teases me a little bit about it now today that growing up, uh, you know, I've known her since we were seven, that I was quite bossy as a kid. <laughs> so, you know, I guess there was that, that leadership desire from when I was younger. But I guess the first hire that I had was someone that I knew really, really well. Uh, she was actually a friend and probably wasn't until we had a few people on the team that I started to notice the leadership skills lacking because the thing that I found the hardest was actually establishing expectations, like communicating expectations with people. And I came to a bit of a crossroad probably about sort of eight months in where I had to do that. And it became really apparent that if I didn't set the expectations and communicate that really clearly, this was probably not going to work. And I remember having a really honest conversation with my mum. She's been in management for decades and so has lots of experience. She's someone that I speak to a lot for advice on things. And she said that, you know, as a leader, your job is not necessarily to be liked, but if you set these expectations, even though it's really hard, people will respect you more for it. Mm. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind that, you know, that that it wasn't really about me being liked or not liked because I guess there is that people pleaser a bit inside of me where I really feared that happening. But setting the expectations was a game changer for me and it was really, really hard. But I think that doing that regularly kind of got me through it. It's sort of a bit like exposure therapy. You know, if you're scared of Mm -hmm. something, if you do it lots and lots of times, then eventually you're not scared of it anymore. So that's something that I struggle with the most that I probably find the easiest to do now, interestingly. Mm -hmm. So So I think experience. 
Yeah. What were some some of the problems that you saw? Like, uh, you, I know that you tried to become a bit more. I guess you set your boundaries, but what was mm. causing you to have to do that? What are some examples of the um, things that happened or the things that the staff said? Yeah. So it was about. It came down to the viability of the business essentially, and that's why I was saying it was a bit of a crossroad. Where if I didn't set the expectations around KPIs, so with what we do as a service. People are paid on the billable work that they do. So there's a lot of non-billable work with our role, but the majority of it is billable. And, you know, if you're not billing, then essentially your role is not going to be very viable if the company is still paying for you to be there. So it was around that. That was sort of the example that I'm going back to that I found really, really difficult, but it needed to be done or we wouldn't have been able to continue on. So setting the sort of expectations around what we need to see performance-wise from staff, that's, yeah, that's what I was referring to with those gotcha. billable hours. And, yeah, I mean, the, the structure of the organisation's actually changed now where we don't have the same sort of KPIs and, and, and that's something that's evolved as the company's grown and I've identified different ways that we can set KPIs yeah, I can to- totally understand what it's like because you. I'm a, also a people pleaser and I guess I'm not so firm on KPIs because I'm like, as long as you're trying your best, uh, you know, I'm kind of very accommodating. So, you know, give me some advice here. Like what did you, well, how did you say in a way that makes those people hold their, themselves accountable and know that, hey, if you ain't performing, you know, the job isn't there for you. Like how did you communicate that? So I'm just trying to remember, it was a while ago, but I think that it was about educating them, the understanding of why we had them in the first place. So whilst I don't, you know, communicate the whole background of the company to staff, they don't need to know everything. They do need to know some bits of it so that they understand where I'm coming from as a leader, why I'm expecting those KPIs to be met and and I think once that they understood the reasoning somewhat behind it it made a lot more sense to them as to why they needed to achieve certain things so like I said we've we've changed the structure of the organization a fair bit now because I was also really aware of wanting to have not just work-life balance for myself but how important that is for staff and as a company that's probably my main focus has always been the staff well-being and looking after the staff and coming from government I noticed that the support coordinators there were really burning out their huge caseloads they didn't even have KPIs uh, back then but well they did actually to some degree but it was more about the high caseloads and so I really didn't want to do that and so we have sort of restructured it in a way that is making both people happy so that's why we subcontract our coordinators so essentially they you know they get paid on the billable work that they do so you know I'm not as stressed because there's not those KPIs that they need to meet otherwise their role is not viable Uh, but you know there's incentive for them to to do the work as well because then they're going to be getting paid more if they're meeting higher KPIs for themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've just shared that you you developed the ability to set boundaries. So if you were to think back when you first started, what were you like as a leader back then? And then four years later, what would you say you are right now? Yeah, in, in terms of the, your, your own awareness, you know, it's just your own um, perspective of yeah. yourself. I was extremely passive, I would say, at the beginning, extremely passive, huge people pleaser issues. I would make decisions 
regarding the company based on what I thought people wanted or what people had communicated that they wanted. So I'd actually do things to make people happy. And, you know, the vision hasn't changed in terms of wanting my staff to be happy. I 100% that's the focus and we take feedback on board and we try and change what we can, but now it's within reason. So I'm making a decision that is coming from what is in the best interest of the business as well, not just what's going to make people happy. So I still will communicate why we might not be able to do something that, you know, that they're requesting, but I don't necessarily just jump on something straight away. Oh, they want, you know, they want to see this happen. So I'm going to make this happen. And then regretting it later because it's, you know, cost the company essentially or, you know, it's not working and it was only one person that wanted it and nobody else really cares. And so I think don't make decisions as hastily and I don't, uh, I do consider the business and rather than just the person themselves. So I think I'm a lot stronger in that, in that way and I'm not influenced by that in the way that I used to be, I'm making decisions and I feel confident in my decisions. So I don't, I think back then if people challenged me on something, I would feel really guilty. Whereas now I am a lot more confident in my decision and that it's, it's a good decision. So, yeah. Yeah. It's so important to follow our our gut instinct sometimes, huh? Even though it's not logical or we're so persuaded by what's happening outside. So what are some of the things that helped you to develop those leadership skills? Like, were there some books or courses or how have you been um, on your leadership journey? I think probably from speaking to other business owners. So I've connected a lot with other business owners and just sharing the same problems that they experience in their business is really reassuring because sometimes you know, if you're isolated, you can feel like it's a you problem. And, you know, I I guess I was feeling like maybe it's just me. Am I doing something wrong? But when I would speak to other business owners and hear that they were experiencing the exact same thing, it was really reassuring. So I would also get, you know, advice or experience shares from them about how they would go about things and perhaps do the same sort of thing in my business. I think I mentioned before about speaking to my mum. So mm. she's, you know, that that would be a conversation over the weekly dinner on a Sunday. Quite often I would ask her questions about that and how she would go about things. She was someone that is well respected in the state government, uh, you know, because we work together essentially. So mm. people <laughs> often didn't know that we were related. So she was w- well respected, but she she did really good in leadership as well. So she managed to get that balance of being well-liked but well-respected at the same time. So I got a lot of advice from her and, yeah, just other people that I knew were in leadership roles, so not not necessarily business owners but people that I knew were in a manager role, you know, how did they go about things as well and even just like reflecting back on my own experience with managers, what did I like about them, what did I not like and trying to use that as well in my own business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- something about this leadership thing really resonate with me because for a long time I thought I was bossy and I could lead and I thought I don't yeah. need to learn anything about leadership. But yeah. since I joined EO and I think hearing stories and, and you know, look, you know, being a, even a moderator helped me realise mm-hmm. that I don't know much about leadership. I mean, having that formal training is so important. Mm-hmm. And But my next kind of phase is kind of thinking about how do I teach my staff some leadership 
skills or training? Have you gone to that stage yet or thinking about that? Yeah, definitely. So in Adelaide, we're actually just starting the key exec program. So my operations manager is going to be joining into that key exec program. So going to the monthly forums, attending the learning days. So I have brought managers along to the learning days before as well from EO and they've got tons of value out of it. So definitely bringing them along to as many of those sorts of things as I've been able to. I did put Erica, the operations manager, she did like a women in leadership course recently. That was uh, one one Wednesday for a month or something like that and found that really useful too. So, yeah, I've definitely looked for training opportunities for the management management team, yeah. Yeah, thanks for that tip. But, yeah, I just realised that I did put my second in charge in the exec program, so he's really loving it. And I guess it's he, I'm going to make it his job to go and think about some other leadership things to do with the, the next level of management as well because sometimes you get caught up in trying to help and do everything yourself and mm. realise that, hey, that's what these people are there for. Your, your second in charge yeah. is there. Yeah. So just to wrap up um, this conversation, thank you so much, by the way. I learned so much and I feel like I relate a lot. I always leave with the last question with um, my guess is, you know, what do you ultimately want the world to remember you for? I think really encouraging people to not just, not just live their best life, but, you know, I feel like sometimes people wanting to do something, but they're scared of failing. And I think that that's something that I've had a conversation with a number of my friends about and I really like encouraging them to take that leap of faith and just try it out and if it doesn't work it's fine but I've you know had conversations with them after you know them doing things like that and it's just made me feel really good that they've felt encouraged by me to try something that they maybe have been discouraged to do before or have been too scared to try out so I think that's what it would be for me is just encouraging people to not just live their best life, but maybe try something that they would regret when they're older. If they yeah. yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And I totally agree. And I think you've really shown it through your story of really embracing, taking on that opportunity and even going through some tough times personally, but you've really done so well. And I'm so glad to have met you at EO. So thank you so much for your time here on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lynn. It's been great. Awesome. I'll have all your details in the description below so everyone can contact you on LinkedIn and everywhere else. So thank you, Xi'an. Bye. Thanks. Bye.